So today, uh, I'm excited we get to embark on our next journey through a whole book of the Bible. So we're going to be spending the next few weeks diving into the book of Jonah. And I, I'm really excited. I think Mike and I are both really just excited to share with you all what we've been learning from this book and about this book. It's, it's really it's a cool book. Uh, first of all, let's, let's begin with a, a quick word of prayer. Father, I just pray this morning that you would let the words of your scripture speak to our hearts today. That you would speak to us in such a way that we experience you, that we learn about you. And Lord, I pray that by your grace, our response to you would be, whether it's a response of praise or grace or repentance, Lord, that it would be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Okay, so the book of Jonah. If we, we're going to be pretty much camping out in Jonah. We're not going to be skipping around a lot today. If you want to find your place there in your Bibles or your apps, uh, you can go ahead and find your place uh, in the book of Jonah, kind of right in the middle of the minor prophets. Uh, but before we get into the story, I'm just curious to do a quick poll. So just by show of hands, how many of you are pretty familiar with the story of Jonah, or even just a little bit familiar? We've kind of heard the story once or twice. Okay, most of you. I'd say the majority of you have. And it's, I was expecting that, because it's pretty much the most, or one, of, one of the really popular stories from the Old Testament. And it's one of those, even the name Jonah. So when you hear that name, it's one of those names that is really well known, uh, even outside of church circles. And it's often paired even with one of the images that's associated with the story. And we have a bunch of these names. So like Noah, Noah's Ark, right? Uh, you, have, uh, you have David and Goliath. Uh, you have Daniel and the lion's den, which we went over that story not long ago. So it's, what is it? It's Jonah and the whale or the fish. Jonah and the whale. Jonah and the fish. And that's probably the first picture that comes to your mind when you think of Jonah, right? Probably not dubbed, is it? We'll, we'll get to that. Uh, but no, Jonah and the whale is what, what it's known as. And you have countless uh, children's books and cartoons that are, you know, they're called Jonah and the whale or Jonah and the very big fish. Um, and usually there's a big fish or a big whale right on the, the cover of the book because that's the image that's associated with the book. Or maybe, you know, maybe you can relate. Uh, maybe you did it like I did when I was a kid. I saw the, the VeggieTales movie of Jonah growing up. That was a huge hit when it came out. It's a great movie. In the story of Jonah, it's really popular for kids' books and for cartoons because it's, it's a really good story. It's a popular story because it's a good story. And it's really almost written in a style that when you read it, it reads almost like a comic book. If there were to be, like when we're talking about ancient Jewish literature and the different genres, if there were to be a comic book genre in Jewish literature, this would be the closest that you get to a comic book. It's just a really, it, or, or at least a script, because it, it doesn't have pictures in it, but it would be like the script that you would insert into just a really colorful and exciting and confusing comic book. And it's still a captivating story today that we tell to children, and that's cool. It's awesome that a lot of 
kids or adults, you know, grow up um, or hear and have some kind of vague, vaguely familiar understanding of the story of Jonah. Telling Bible stories to kids in their most basic format is important. Uh, and again, VeggieTales made a great movie. I don't want to diss the movie. It's hilarious. Uh, but the problem with it is that too many of us never took it any further. Too many of us never bothered to look at this story again as adults or uh, never studied it with, you know, just looking at the details and the, the nuances and you don't appreciate some of those things that kids, little kids, when reading it, just can't pick up on some of those things, the, you know, the themes and the patterns. But because we know the story, we, we've heard it, we know what happens, and so we just leave it at that. That's enough. But to leave it at that really is to miss out on a lot that's going on in this book, and it's to miss out on really even some of the main points of the book. So my hope is that as we study this book together over the next few weeks, even if you are familiar with the story, that you'll gain a deeper appreciation for the book of Jonah. And in fact, even if you have before studied the book in depth, there's always more to see. In fact, you might, a few of you might remember uh, a few years ago, we did, well, Mike did a series in the book of Jonah. There's a whole other you know, series, and it's actually still available online if you want to go back and compare. But what's interesting is this series is going to end up being a lot different from that original series. And it's not just because I'm doing some of the preaching. In fact, I actually was part of some of the study that, that Mike went through for the original one. But even if Mike was just doing this all over again, I'm sure you'll agree, it would still be a totally different series than the first one. And not, in, not that it contradicts the first one at all, or even that this one is going to be somehow inherently better than the first one. It's just a different experience with the text, a different per, a perspective uh, from before. And that's just the awesome way that God can continue to speak to us through his word, through scripture, for well beyond a lifetime's worth of reading and studying and meditating on it. So, with, you know, all that said, for now, uh, I'm going to stop talking about the book. Before we get any further, uh, I just want us to read through the whole story of Jonah together. So, yes, we're going to actually read the whole book. We're going to read the whole book in one sitting, which I know might sound like a lot to read a whole book at once, but it's really a very small book. It's four short chapters. It's a very short story. But it is dense. There is a lot in there. So we're going to read the whole thing to get a big picture of the whole story. And then we'll come back and uh, kind of break it down into smaller pieces. So Jonah, chapter one, if you want to read along today, I'm going to be reading first out of the New Living Translation. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be comparing different translations. And we'll see how that can be actually really helpful in picking up on different things. So this is going to be the New Living Translation, NLT. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea 
causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their god for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this? He shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused this terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Why did you do it, they groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do for you to stop the storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to land. But the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. Oh, Lord, they pleaded. Don't make us die for this man's sin, and don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh, Lord, you've sent this storm upon him for your own good reason. Then the sailor picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now, the Lord had arranged for a great fish. By the way, in Jewish tradition, in the, at least in the JPS uh, translation of this book, chapter 1 ends at verse 16, and then chapter 2 begins with 17. So I kind of like that break as a cliffhanger between the two chapters. I throw them over, the sailors vow to serve God, and then in verse 17, Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depth, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, Oh Lord, you have driven me from your presence. Yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. I sank beneath the waves and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountain. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates locked shut forever. But you, O oh Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies. But I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. And the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up. 
and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne, took off his royal robe, he dressed himself in burlap, and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. This change of plan greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city, made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he explained. But then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great fruit? There's a lot to read out loud. Quite a story. So what do we do with that? What do we do with this story? Why is this story in our Bibles? I don't mean, you know, how it was canonized. We talked about a couple weeks ago. Just, you know, assuming there is some value to this book, where is that value? I can tell you, I can tell you one thing, first of all. The value is not the fish. The point is not the fish. The fish is cool and all. It's a cool part of the story. But the story is not ultimately about the fish. And it's not, it's not really even about Jonah. The story, the story is about Jonah. He's like the focused character 
but the value of the story is not knowing about Jonah or how horrible of a person he was, he was which he was, by the way, just we'll, we'll get into that more, but he was a terrible person, especially for a prophet. He, this is not a hero or a uh, role model here. And this story is not valuable either for having a practical list of actionable items that you can take away from it. You just won't find that in this book. It's convenient that Mike just preached about not having those actionable items, so it's kind of helpful. So why Jonah, though? Why? It's, it's not for any of those reasons. I want, to, I want to share with you a quote from the Expositor's Bible Commentary from the end of the book of Jonah. It says, quite simply, this book contains no call to action. It is rather a revelation of God's character and attitude towards his creation given to Jonah and through Jonah to Israel and to us. So that's the number one primary reason for reading this book. That's where the value is. The primary value is that it's a revelation of God's character and of his attitude towards his creation. And that's actually a typical value or typical typical point of biblical narrative, especially in the Old Testament. Usually the point is to reveal something about God, not to provide a list of things to do or to not do. And I think there's a danger in forgetting that. Uh, and that's how we get into these traps in our exegesis and our preaching that Mike talked about last week. And, and so let's talk about the style of it too. So that's the point, but Mike also talked about different genres a couple of weeks ago, different styles of literature in this script, and how we need to approach those different types of literature differently. So how, how will we approach the book of Jonah? I've been calling it a story. I've been referring to it mainly as a narrative. But it's actually a little bit more complex than that. It's not as straightforward as some of the other narratives in scripture. So first of all, remember how I said it kind of reads like a comic book, if that were to be a a style of Jewish literature. If, there, if we were to create a subcategory under that category, purely in just the sense of the general tone of the book, the way it sounds, the way it feels to read it, it has to be something in the, li- in the lines of the category of satire. Okay, and here's, here's the definition of satire. The use of humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule, ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices. And that's how this story comes across. This is exposing someone's stupidity and vices. Or, so it's like reading you know, a political cartoon or watching a skit on TV where the situation is so extreme or so unexpected that you know, it makes a point in the way it is framed. The one problem with that, though, to, I don't want to totally categorize it as satire, because generally when we talk about satire, it's some sort of fictional story, a fictional situation to make a point. And I believe Jonah is actually a historical narrative in that it is a story of something that actually happened. But that ends up also being kind of one of the main points of contention when we talk about Jonah. It's usually oftentimes where the conversation about this book gets hung up as to whether it could have possibly happened uh, really. But usually that's also, that comes down to whether or not the fish was a plausible situation, right? And 
But again, the story is not about the fish. It's a cool part of the story. But the message of this story does not hinge on the fish or whether that happens. If you do believe in the God of the Bible, the God that's described throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament, then it's really not hard to take the book of Jonah, uh, historically accurate in a literal sense. But at the same time, if that's the main thing that you're concerned about <laughs> with this book, then you're totally missing the point of why it's here. So anyway, uh, the genre is biblical narrative, but it's all, it has this flavor of satire where it's using all kinds of irony and humor. But this guy Jonah, he's also a prophet, right? Which is, isn't that why we're studying Jonah in the first place? Because we've been going through the prophets. Uh, we've talked about exile, and now we're talking about the prophets leading up to the exile and during the exile and after the exile. And yeah, Jonah is one of the 12. What We, we call them the minor prophets. Um, in Jewish tradition, it was just the 12. And that was one of the, the stories or volumes in, in one single volume called the 12, alongside the other three prophets. So Jonah is in that category of prophets, both in Jewish tradition and our modern, modern Protestant tradition. It's the book of the prophets. We just went through another book of the prophets uh, recently, before the last series. The one before that was a uh, series on the book of Malachi. And we went through the whole book. Does anyone remember how that book began? The very first verse of Malachi, by any chance? Or want to venture a guess? So it began with a pronouncement. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. You can also, if you're, if you're in Jonah right now, if you flip forward probably like a page or two, you'll find the book of Micah. How does that book start? Almost exactly the same way. The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morishite. So that phrase, or similar phrases like that, that's a telltale marker that you're about to read one of the books of the prophets. They all begin with really similar phrases, whether it's the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. Sometimes it uses the word vision instead of word, but it's generally all the same concept. So you get to Jonah, and how does Jonah begin? It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. So this is a standard boilerplate introduction to a book of the prophets. So if you're a Jewish reader, making your way through the prophets, and you read the first three, and now you're into the twelve, and you, by the time you get to Jonah, you're reading Jonah, you've already read through Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. So you've already read through four prophets, which are pretty standard. They would have read pretty similarly to the book of Malachi that we went through. It doesn't really tell a lot about the prophets themselves. It's just the words of their prophecies. And then, uh, so yeah, you read, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of, son of Amittai, you know what to expect from here. You're reading a prophet. You're about to read through what God said to Jonah. Some kind of message, usually to some city or to some people group, about what God's going to do about how, or how he feels about what they're doing or how they need to change their attitudes or actions. They may have done something wrong, something like that. And then there is one sentence in verse 2 where it is God's word to Jonah. But then the rest of chapter 1 is narrative. It tells the story of what Jonah proceeded to do after hearing that very short word from God. 
And some of the other prophets do have little snippets of stories from throughout their, their lives. But Jonah, Jonah is the only book of the prophets that actually tells a complete narrative from beginning to end. So it's, it's really unique in that regard. And so it's kind of hard to pinpoint just one style for the book of Jonah to fit into. And I, I think the best way to describe it is as a prophetic narrative about a poetic prophet. Okay, it kind of has a nice ring to it, but I think that's the best way to describe it. Prophetic narrative about a poetic prophet. Because the story itself does reveal something about God, and it points to Jesus, and it reflects on us uh, and how we can see ourselves in the story. So in that sense, the whole story is itself a prophecy, but it's also a story about a prophet. And there's a whole chapter in here, one of four chapters, that's totally devoted to this poetic prayer. So that makes Jonah very unique. And in fact, I think it's meant to be somewhat disorienting, in a sense. Even shocking. It's very backwards. From the very beginning, it's upside down. Even just in the style, because it starts off as a prophecy, and then it just goes right into narrative. And then there's another piece of irony, so another backwards thing that starts right from the beginning, which is his name. So the name Jonah, in Hebrew it's Yonah, it's the Hebrew word for dove. So that explains why there's dove on the screen. And doves in the Bible are a symbol of, of purity, of holiness, and innocence. And then his father's name, he's Jonah, Yonah, the son of Amitai. And Amitai means faithfulness. So literally, he's introduced as Dove, son of faithfulness. Isn't that nice? Dove, son of faithfulness. And the word of Yahweh comes to this Dove, son of faithfulness. And then in verse 3, this Dove flees from Yahweh. Flies away. And that's not being very holy or faithful at all, is it? In fact, he went the opposite direction of where God told him to go. God told him to go to Nineveh, which would have been east of where Jonah was, and he flees to Tarshish, which would have been uh, west of where Jonah was. So he goes in the opposite direction. And most people think that the specific location was actually on the opposite side of the sea. So he was trying to get as far away as possible from where God wanted him to go. And all that is in the first three verses. <laughs> so already we have this really dense... Uh, piece of literature that's, that's pulling us into this kind of upside-down and backwards and ironic and surprising world. And that backwards approach is really a motif to look for that we'll see throughout the whole rest of the book, where everything is happening in the most unexpected way. And in, in verse 4, it says, The Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm. So this introduces our first major theological theme that we'll see all throughout the rest of the book. And that's the one we're going to focus most on today because it comes up several times just in the first chapter. And this, this particular verse, with the Lord hurling this wind and causing this storm, you know, it has all these hyperlinks to all kinds of other things throughout Scripture, but at its core, it's making a statement about God's sovereignty 
over creation, over nature. You'll see it all throughout the book. And that point is obviously made with the fish, too, but you see it before and after the fish. And this is the first, the first point. The first main point, it's not an action point. There's nothing you can do about this fact. It's just something to believe, that God is sovereign over creation. Kind of, kind of an obvious point. Kind of one of the most fundamental theological points that we have. Uh, it's, it's a premise that's established from the very beginning of Scripture with Genesis 1.1. Uh, as God being the creator of the whole world. So that, that theological premise is really a foundation for understanding everything in the rest of Scripture. It's not, it's not that Jonah is unique in that it asserts this equality about God or asserts this truth about God, but it's an important, an important statement. And it's interesting, the first you know place where this comes up is with the storm, but I, I can't say that I've really heard any arguments uh, about whether or not God really did cause a storm or could cause a storm, you know, to put the ship in distress. Usually the argument is about the fish, right? How that, whether or not that's scientifically feasible. And I don't really understand why that is, because before the fish, you have this other statement of God's supremacy over nature. But the argument is always about the fish. Uh, but for some reason, you know, it's easier to believe that God is responsible for weather, uh, and it's, it's almost obvious. Even in secular context, you know, I've seen it in legal, for legal purposes sometimes, different events will be labeled as acts of God, right? It's almost just intuitive, and it goes, it just kind of goes deep into the tradition of cultures all over the world that deities are in charge or have control over different weather and natural events. And even, you can see that with these pagan sailors who were on the ship with Jonah, they had the kind of intuition and their own tradition to recognize the storm as having some sort of divine intervention. Of course, they weren't familiar with Yahweh, but they each had their own gods, lowercase g gods that they worshipped, and they assumed that one of their gods was angry. Someone's god on this ship is angry. So then after they cried out to their gods, they get busy hurling stuff overboard, trying to lighten the ship. Um, and just as a side note, note how many times certain words get repeated throughout this. And it can depend on your translation which word, uh, but words like hurl or throw, um, usually translated one of the two of those ways, hurl or throw, that's repeated so many times throughout this book. And in, in Hebrew, it's the same word. Also the word great or big, or huge. Uh, everything is huge. Uh, the Nineveh is huge. The ship is huge. The storm is huge. The whale is huge. Everything is huge in this world. So yeah, just pay attention to some of those repeated words. It's, it's interesting. And meanwhile, so the, sa- <laughs> the sailors are pleading for their lives. They're crying out to their gods. They're throwing stuff overboard. And Jonah is down in the lowest part of the ship, hiding, sleeping. And at this point, by running away in the first place, he has demonstrated that he really has no regard for, you know, the fate of the people of Nineveh. Uh, But now he also really doesn't care about his own life or the lives of those around him, it seems. But the captain, he shakes him awake. He says, what are you doing? Come and call out to your God, whoever God that is. Uh, And 
actually, you know, do something to contribute to this situation. You can't just be down here sleeping. Out of the chance that maybe it might do something good for you to call out to your God, just come and do something. Which, this is just, this is another example of how backward the story is, isn't it? Because prophets of God are the ones who are supposed to be shaking sense into the stupor of other people around them, who they're called to give messages from God to. And here we have a pagan captain shaking Jonah awake, shaking dove, dove son of faithfulness, wake up and be faithful. He's imploring Jonah to be faithful by praying to his God. And by the way, there's no indication that Jonah did actually pray at all at this time. So the pagans in this scene, in this situation, were more committed to prayer and faithfulness to their God than the prophet of Yahweh was his God. That is just so backwards. And then they cast lots in verse 7. And in doing so, Jonah was singled out by these lots. And lots are an interesting topic. I'm not going to go, you can do a whole study through the whole Bible about lots. Um, but basically, it was just like throwing dice. It was a randomized action. Uh, it was an act of chance that produced a, a random outcome. And the outcome was understood to be left up to the higher powers, whatever deity uh, those throwing the lots believed in. So this was obviously a common pagan practice to throw, uh, to cast lots and just picture throwing a, a die or dice or drawing straws even. Um, so this was common in pagan circles, but it was actually a Jewish tradition too. So one example, or at least a parallel example, would be the priests who used the umim and thumim to discern God's will in certain situations. But in both cases, the understanding was that the outcome was subject to divine authority. And the Jews understood that ultimately that authority was the sovereignty of Yahweh in every situation. And we can see that in Proverbs 16:33. The NLT translates it this way. We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. Another translation would be, the lot will be cast into the lap but all its decisions are from Yahweh. That's a more literal translation. So the lot, which we understand is uh, determined, the decisions of the lot are from Yahweh, right? And the lot singled out Jonah. So again, we see God's sovereignty in the outcome of that situation. So the attention turns to Jonah, and they demand an introduction. They say, who are you? Where are you from? Why are you here? What's going on? His, Jonah's answer is, is interesting. It's, again, just so thick with irony. Because he says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. So he's claiming to fear Yahweh. He makes a statement about Yahweh being the creator of the world and thus having authority over this whole storm and the situation they're in. And yet we know he's on the run from Yahweh. So he must realize deep down that that's impossible. He knows God created the world, including the ocean, the sea that he's currently in, and yet he's trying to hide from him. But and on top of that, it's clear that all of these people on this ship are in danger because of him, because of Jonah. So ultimately, especially for a prophet of Yahweh, he's really not bearing Yahweh's name 
very effectively, very faithfully. So the other men, they ask him for advice. They say, what should we do? More specifically, they say, what should we do to you? Because their assumption, their understanding would have been, okay, this guy's God is mad at him. He must need some sort of recompense, some sort of, uh, we need to do something to him in order to appease this angry God. But think about this. Jonah, being a prophet of Yahweh, knows Yahweh, at least knows about him. He knows he's merciful. <laughs> Remember, that's why he was running in the first place. He comes out and says it in chapter 4, verse 2. He said, this is what I said while I was still in my own country. That's why I fled in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending, sending disaster. That's what he knew before he ever even got on the boat. He knew this about God. And yet when he confronted in the storm, he told the men to, to throw him overboard, to kill him. Rather than repenting, and asking for God's forgiveness and choosing to obey if God would allow him a second chance to obey instead of running away. He would rather die, which, by the way, would then be putting his blood on their hands, the hands of the sailors throwing him over. He'd rather do that. He'd rather die and cause these innocent people to be guilty of murder rather than just admit his sin and see God be merciful towards the city of Nineveh. That's some dove son of faithfulness, isn't it? So, and by the way, in, I think sometimes people read this part of the story and they kind of see Jonah's actions uh, where he says, just throw me overboard. Oh, that's a very selfless, uh, self-sacrificing act of heroism, right? Maybe this is kind of his redeeming moment. But I don't think that's really accurate. I don't think there's anything to indicate, first of all, that God told Jonah to tell them to throw him overboard. And there's nothing to indicate any sort of repentance or remorse on Jonah's part. He never tried to even seek God's will in the situation in prayer. Meanwhile, these pagan sailors who are, you know, confronting Jonah, they have, meanwhile, this outstanding moral stamina and heroic, just, they want to save this guy's life. They don't want to kill him. So they do everything they can do to avoid killing Jonah. They just row harder. They try their best to, to avoid doing this, but the storm doesn't relent. And in fact, if you compare the language, if you look at how the storm is described in verses 4, 11, and 13, it, it kind of gradually builds the intensity of the storm. It's a very colorful and effective way to build the suspense in the story leading up to this point. So eventually they do have to throw him overboard. But while they're doing it, they cry out to Yahweh for forgiveness. And that's something, again, Jonah never bothered to ask for forgiveness. He just said, eh, kill me. So then after they throw him over, everything quiets down. And that in itself confirms that it was indeed Yahweh, Jonah's God, who was responsible for that storm. And then in response, after they did that, the sailors offered a sacrifice to Yahweh. And they made vows, presumably vows to recognize Yahweh as at least one of their many gods. But it's significant that 
it says that men were seized with great fear of Yahweh. And there's that word great again. Great fear. Jonah, he was the one that said a few verses earlier that he feared and worshipped Yahweh. Now here's the pagan. The pagans are the one doing the fearing and the worshipping and offering sacrifices to Yahweh. It's totally backwards. And on top of that, they declare the sovereignty of Yahweh. Did you notice that? So we see this idea of sovereignty again in this concept, in their statement, where they say, you, Yahweh, have done just as you please. Two different translations of that, but they're acknowledging that Yahweh has done just as you please. done everything in his own power. And then finally, so... The end of chapter 2, in verse 17, we have, this is, by the way, one of only three verses where the fish is mentioned. Verse 17, the fish swallows Jonah, who then hangs out in its belly for three days and three nights, and we're going to come back to that at a later time. But for now, I just want to primarily point out this part about the fish, where how the verse begins. Verse 17 says, Yahweh appointed a great fish. So that word appointed... Pay attention to that word, too, or however that word is, is translated in, in your version. Sometimes it's prepared, ordained, uh, a great fish. So that word you'll see pop up quite a few times again uh, throughout the book. And it's yet another statement or acknowledgement of Yahweh's sovereignty over creation. So that's, that's five times. That's five times Yahweh's sovereignty is explicitly... Uh, or implicitly stated just in the first chapter. So the first is where Yahweh hurls a great wind against the sea. Second is the lots, which we know to be, but we know the lots are determined by Yahweh, and the lot singled out Jonah. And then the storm was immediately, it, immediately everything calmed down as soon as Jonah is disposed of, uh, which confirmed that Yahweh was indeed. Uh, responsible for the storm. The fourth is when the sailors acknowledge that Yahweh did just as he pleases, and the fish uh, is the fifth one, the fish being appointed by Yahweh. So five times Yahweh's authority is recognized in chapter one. And leading up to verse 16, everything is just kind of culminating in these pagans recognizing Yahweh's authority and his name being worshipped. And the sailors, they really don't ever get mentioned again throughout the rest of the story. So we don't know what happened with the rest of their lives. The fish comes in, and from that point on, we're kind of swept away to a whole new scene, and even a whole different type of literary genre in in chapter 2. But the stage has been set, and you've entered this upside-down, bizarro world where the pagans are doing everything right, and God's prophet is doing everything wrong. But through all of that... Even in this upside-down world, one of the core messages is that God is sovereign even when it seems like everything else is backwards. God is still in control. Now, there's a lot more to be said. Even in chapter 1, we could go on and on about all kinds of different things in here. There's lots to explore. For now, I'm going to leave you not with three application points, because last week, Mike preached about preaching, and he preached that we shouldn't preach three application points. So at least not every time, just because we're Baptists doesn't mean we have to have three application points. So, And it's not that this story doesn't have application, because it does, but for now I just want us to take this book 
and use it as a way to reflect on God, reflect on who he is. I guess I do, I have a call to action for you, sort of a challenge, but it's not directly something from the story. Rather, I just want to encourage you to read the book throughout this week. Even just one time, it won't take you 20 minutes probably to read the whole thing. I've just read the whole thing out loud, and most people can read faster than I read out loud. And I would even encourage you to read it multiple times, compare different translations, look for those repeated words and concepts, look for statements about God, theological truth, and then most of all, just ask questions. Believe me, there are a lot of questions the story begs. Whether or not you actually ask a, a person, you know, write them down, ask yourself, meditate on it, just wrestle your, with the concept and this. Allow yourself to wrestle with these ideas. We'll be exploring and wrestling at all, all whole different, a whole bunch of different uh, layers in this book over the coming week. Uh, but I can, I can only ramble for so long and on one morning. So for now, uh, or at least I should only ramble for so long. So for now, I'm going to kind of stop here. We're going to take our time with this book. And I'm, I'm trying to resist, and I'm asking you to resist as well, from, you know, rushing to conclusions or rushing to, you know, make charts and paradigms and uh, checklists. Rather, just allow God to reveal himself to you through his word and letting that not only be enough, but actually be the most valuable treasure that we can find no matter where you look in scripture is to find truth about God. Maybe at the very end, we can make some checklists and charts, because I like those, but uh, for now, let's pray. Lord God, you are the awesome, almighty creator of heaven and earth and everything that's been created, and I'm in awe this morning that we can come before you and address you as our Father. Lord, we we seek the glory and the honor of your name as your servants in your kingdom. Lord, we we recognize your sovereignty and we submit ourselves to your will in service of your will. And God, we just ask you to reveal yourself to us, to show yourself to us, make yourself known, to teach us how to know you more and to love you more fully with everything that we are. We ask for your provision that you would provide for our needs and also teach us to be patient and to be content with what we have. And I ask for your forgiveness and I thank you for your forgiveness in the name and by the blood of Jesus Christ how our many debts to you are forgiven because of him. Lord, teach us to forgive those around us who may have wronged us with the the same depth with which we have been forgiven. Lord, let your Spirit guide our paths and keep our paths straight as we strive to love you fully and love our neighbors as ourselves with that same love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.